The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. I'm Dan Murphy, Director of Special Initiatives at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and with me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is Dr. Wei Ping. She is Professor of Urban and Environmental Policy and Planning at Tufts University and a Senior Fellow at the Center for Emerging Market Enterprises at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. She was also a Fellow in the first round of the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program from 2005 to 2007. Today we will discuss a new book co-authored by Dr. Wu entitled The Chinese City. Wei Ping, welcome to the NCU SCR China Podcast. Thanks, Dan. So let's start off with some historical perspective. How were cities viewed through the lens of Maoist ideology, and how did that affect their development? And how is this different from the ways cities are viewed in China today? Okay, so uh, when Mao took power in 1949, China was about 10% urbanized. That means about 10% of the population were living in the cities, and at the time, Mao uh, came from a power base of rural peasantry, and cities, as a result, partially were viewed as sort of parasites. They were places for consumption, places for commerce, but not necessarily for production. So there was a quote-unquote anti-urban bias in Mao's um, development strategies. Uh, however, actually, in many ways, uh, the anti-urban bias wasn't played out in the actual implementation in a way the rural sector was actually subsidizing cities. In reality, the real restriction for cities came from sort of the control over the growth of large cities, particularly very large ones, and the control of migration from rural areas to urban areas, and the lack of investment in urban infrastructure to sort of upgrade cities um, over time. So for 30 years, a lot of cities essentially uh, lived on the kind of infrastructure they inherited in 1949. Now, you, you note in your book that the dominant ideas about the nature and development of cities tends to be Eurocentric, which leads to the question, what does a study of Chinese cities add to our understanding of cities in general what is it about China's cities that makes them special? Really tough question. Um, uh, one thing I think is really unique about Chinese, not necessarily the urban experience, but the urbanization experience is the rule of the state. So many, many countries around the world, particularly in the global south, as they were poor or as embarking on industrialization, they tend to have a primary city that is very dominating. But in China, uh, the central government has taken a very strong role in managing the growth of particularly the very large cities, as well as encouraging the growth of smaller and medium-sized cities. So as a result, the country actually has a fairly balanced urban system without the dominance of one or two very, very large cities in the way that there's uh, more equity among cities. But that is not to say that there isn't disparity. In fact, you know, large cities tend to fare better and the urban areas in general tend to fare better. And then I think secondly, if, you, if we look at urban life, especially between 1949 and 1979, the socialist cities were a much more egalitarian uh, type of place in which 
you know, work and residence were sort of more integrated together. And um, it's no longer the case, but uh, it created um, a lot of sort of neighborhoods with very sort of uh, mixed kinds of income types of sort of neighborhoods and mixed kinds of sort of housing and work. And that is in a way disappearing today, but it's still um, in some parts of the most cities, you can still see that legacy. Today with more and more market processes, um, the landscape within Chinese cities tends to become more and more resembling Western um, cities. Nonetheless, we still see, for instance, Chinese cities uh, undergo a very different process of, of what we call suburbanization. And also Chinese cities um, continue to be very, very um, sort of relying on the central downtown area. So that's still the the sort of the most dynamic and vital at the parts of the cities and especially comparing to North American cities. I mean, European cities are like that in many ways. So there are some really interesting differences and increasingly more similarities. In your book, you show how municipal governments have become like local development states. Can you explain mm -hmm. what you mean by that? Yeah. Lots of scholars call Chinese local governments either developmental state or uh, local, you know, corporatism. Uh, what it really means to me is that um, the local governments is are in, in an active and also, you know, really proactive player in the making of urban space. So if you go to American city, the local government is, is more or less an enabling uh, agent that provides sort of the regulatory framework and uh, you know, sets the rule of game. But in China, for instance, uh, a municipal government in Shanghai would be uh, you know, actively engaged in real estate development, actively engaged in, you know, certainly in uh, infrastructure construction, and certainly in housing. And most importantly, because of public land ownership, uh, the local governments have, uh, you know, um, almost in, you know, sort of dominant control of land and how land should be used, how land should be leased, how land should be transferred. And that becomes a very important source of revenues for local governments. So there's a significant incentive to sort of push through many large projects by you know leasing land to foreign investors to you know large real estate developers so the state is very active in that process from different uh, sort of angles you mentioned land ownership so i, I want to follow up on that in mm -hmm. chinese cities land ownership is separate from land use rights so tell us how this system developed and how land use rights are leased today in Chinese cities. Yeah, so then you remember we had we gone on this trip that to look at land use um, uh, planning and rights issues. So in China, essentially uh, in cities, land is um, what we called uh, under a leasehold system. So the state theoretically owns the ownership. So the ownership becomes what we call a bundle of rights. So you separate the ownership right from the use right. And so when the state owns the ownership right, it has the flexibility to lease out or transfer the use right. Generally, before 19, I'm sorry, 2005, 
Um, that process was more or less determined behind the doors. That is, you know, a developer, a state enterprise would negotiate with a land bureau and uh, sort of negotiate both the lease price and lease term and so on and so forth. Since 2005, the central government had required a more market-based process of bidding and tendering. And so in Chinese, that's called zhao pai gua. Still, uh, according to some official estimates, only about 30 to 40% of land transfers actually go through um, the market-based processes. And so, um, and especially for state-owned enterprises, they do not need to go through the market-based uh, processes. And so today you have sort of two sort of track of land leasing. Uh, one track is market-based, one track is sort of um, uh, official uh, allocation to state-owned enterprises and institutions. Uh, however, um, the market-based track generates a great deal of revenue, and for many cities, for instance, uh, about 30 to 40 percent of financing for infrastructure comes from um, land leasing. Generally speaking, how long are the leases and what happens when the lease is up? You know, for the second part of the question, we don't know because we only started this um, land leasing system in the 90s. Oh, and the earliest one happened in Shenzhen in the 80s. So no, nothing has expired so far. So generally, the industrial uses tend to have the longest lease term that tends to go to anywhere between 70 to 90 years, commercial and so on, 50 to 70 years, and residential, 30 to 50 years. So it's fairly long lease term. Uh, so we shall see in the next decade or so more and more land uh, sort of parcels will go through renewal. The expectations are that most of them will you know, be renewed. Uh, unless you know profit margins increase dramatically on certain parcels, and there's the intention to uh, develop into more intensive uses. Speaking of land use, it's hard not to notice that there's been a high number of social protests due to land takings in China. So, what are the relevant rules for compensation now in land takings in Chinese cities, mm -hmm. and what happens in practice if the practice is different from the written rules? Yeah, um, that actually really has gone through probably two, two to three different uh, sort of reworking in terms of the methods of compensation. As we talked about that land really is owned by the state, so the residents that need to be relocated are only compensated, compensated for their um, housing values as well as what we call livelihood. So if they have a shop and so on, they need to be compensated for that. And originally, um, there were sort of two main methods. One is um, you were given a uh, relocation uh, unit somewhere in the suburbs of a city. And so you get it free, more or less. And then second uh, is uh, you get money. And the first method has turned out to be quite expensive sometimes um, because uh, they it sort of entails the public sector or the government to build new housing. And so more recently, uh, we have seen at least three different ways of compensation. One is, of course, you can still get a resettlement unit, but that's actually less and less popular. The most popular way is cash compensation. 
Um, and in the West, that will be based on market value. But in China, um, some older units, it's a lot difficult to get a comp to really get market value. So there are certain um, standards set by local governments of how mm -hmm. to compensate. Explain why it would be difficult to get at the market value. Um, so let's say if you want to buy a house in the States, uh, in a sub suburb, so your real estate agent will be basically pulling out the sales um, price of houses that are very similar to your uh, place. In China, um, density is higher and also a lot of the older housing in downtown areas tends to be quite dilapidated without infrastructure. So um, they are of a fairly small size. If you truly say compared to an equivalent unit on the market, first, it's difficult to find. Second, these units really don't, aren't worth a whole lot. So in fact, uh, some scholars actually argue the compensation standards are somewhat um, better than they should have been. But the problem is, even at a little higher sort of standard, many of the uh, sort of working class families living in downtown would not be able to buy a market unit with that compensated cash because today's housing price is just uh, astronomically more expensive, particularly in the large cities. So that is the sort of the, in many ways, root of the uh, some of the protests and then, and then in addition to that the, another root of the protest is that uh, most of the evictions uh, the the house owners or the tenants don't have much say in terms of whether they want to move or not because in the United States um, you can sue the locality you can refuse to move but in China uh, that's much more difficult. China has a huge migrant worker population and migrants have had a very big influence on Chinese cities. Can you tell us in what ways is access to urban amenities different for urban residents and migrants? And have there been recent changes in the hukou or household registration system that mm -hmm. has had an influence on this? Um, yeah. Um, over the last, since 1983, essentially, the migrants began to flood into cities. Uh, the overall direction of change uh, has been positive. That is to say, migrants are getting slowly, but certainly gradually treated a little bit better and a little bit better over time. And in fact, today, if you go to small cities, whether you are a migrant or not, doesn't matter a great deal because most of the housing sector is open, most of the employment sector is open. It is when a migrant goes to large cities like Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, that uh, they see a lot more barriers. So the barriers are multifold. And one is uh, employment. That is, state sector jobs generally um, are not open to migrants. You need a local uh, hukou. Um, but you know, if you go into manufacturing jobs, like factory jobs, that's a little bit different, but the office jobs and so on are not open. Secondly is housing. So especially the more affordable housing, such as low rent housing or what we call economic and comfortable housing, which is the uh, for sale uh, affordable housing, require local hukou. And third, and perhaps most importantly, is public education for children of migrant families. That requires a local hukou, unless you are willing as a migrant uh, parent to pay um, substantially higher fees than local children. 
uh, to get your kids into a local public school. And uh, of course, private schools generally are out of reach for these families. Now, that's not to say you don't have, well, you know, uh, migrant families that, that don't flourish in cities. The migrant population now is becoming more and more differentiated. Although the majority is labor migrants from rural areas, we have seen that uh, some migrants with higher level of education and more of urban background do quite well in cities. In fact, uh, I've looked at um, sort of their uh, housing attainment as well as their uh, social benefit attainment. Uh, the urban migrants with better education seem to fare almost on par with local residents. Wei Ping, I want to thank you for taking the time to sit down with me today. This has been a very interesting conversation. Thank you, Dan.